Horse of a Different Color by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1968, Chapter 11, Foreclosures. Lord God, I am um, recording this as, as the kids are rejoicing in snow, in winter, in cold weather, and the change of seasons. How we rejoice that you give us uh, these different times uh, where the cycles of, of uh, cold and spring and summer and fall all transition so that we can uh, be dependent on you, not dependent on ourselves for all the things that we have and enjoy and get to do. We give you praise because you are sovereign over our lives and all the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the day after we returned from Kansas City, I was working on a radio when Marguerite came out to the bunkhouse and told me that VP had phoned and asked if I'd come to the bank right away. When I went in, he didn't mention my having withdrawn my account, but thanked me for sending a telegram, gave me my canceled note, and told me, we don't aim to foreclose on anybody or anything unless we're forced to. But poor old Harry let this bank get into such awful shape with past due and poorly secured loans that we'll have to take proceedings in a few cases. What I'd like to do is work on out a deal with you for handling and shipping any livestock we find it necessary to foreclose on. Although VP accused me of being a robber, we finally made an agreement, put it in writing, and both signed it. I was to be paid $50 a carload for shipping and accompanying to market all stock delivered to the Cedar Bluffs loading pens on fit shipping days. If cattle had to be brought in from the farms, I was to receive an additional dollar a head, plus 50 cents for each day they had to be cared for and fed before shipment. The rate for hogs was half those amounts. I was to take my pay in livestock, valued at what it would bring at butchering stock at Kansas City, less $1.50 per hundredweight. I hadn't seen George Miner since shipping, so went over for a visit right after supper. It was bright moonlight when I came home, and there was a new Buick touring car on the dooryard. I knew that Bob must have come home by way of McCook and picked up the auto he'd ordered when he sold the corn. I stopped a minute to look the Buick over and had started toward the kitchen door when I heard Marguerite say in an almost hysterical tone, You'll do no such thing, Bob Wilson. Tomorrow morning, I turned back to the bunkhouse, lighted a lamp, and went to work on my radio set. By the time I'd finished the job, the house was dark and silent, so I went in quietly and to bed. In winter, I'd always built a fire before going to do the milking so the kitchen would be warm and Marguerite came out to cook breakfast. But when I woke next morning, I could see the reflection of a light in the kitchen, and as I dressed, I heard the rattle of stove lids. When I went to the doorway, Marguerite was standing at the stove as though in a trance, staring down at a basket of cobs she held in her hands. She looked tired enough to fall, utterly discouraged, and her swollen face and eyes showed plainly that she'd been crying. I stepped forward, took the basket, and said, Let me build a fire for you. Why didn't you call me? She looked around with a vacant expression and said, I suppose you know Bob's home. He's out milking. Well, in the year I'd lived there, Bob had never been, had never before been up earlier than I, or done the milking if I were at home. Between the shock of it and trying to avoid admitting that I'd overheard her scolding him, I had no better sense than to say, I thought so when I saw the new Buick in the yard last night. Well, that's all he brought, she said, and we're not going to keep it. I don't know where he's been or what he's been doing, but he didn't go to Junction City, and he hasn't got a nickel to his name. There's going to be another baby next fall, and I don't know. Hasn't Bob made anything out of all the stock you fed together? 
Neither of us has made a nickel on it, I told her. But I've still got enough to carry on the shipping business, and Bob could make a good living from it if he'd settle down and go to work. Then I went out to tell him what I thought of him. Lantern light shone full on Bob's bloated face, and for the first time since I'd known him, it showed deep worry, if not stark fear. I've been an awful fool, he said in a dull voice. I don't know if I spent or lost it, but all I got for the corn is gone, and Marguerite's expecting again in the fall. I come home through McCook and picked up the Buick, but I didn't know then that Marguerite was expecting. After breakfast, I'm going to take it back. If they won't give me no refund, will you leave me a hundred or two till I get back onto my feet again? I won't lend you a penny, I told him. If you honestly want to make a living for your family, you can work for me in the shipping business and help farm this place. But every dollar you get out of it, you'll earn with your own two hands. The first time you shirk or groan about that phony lame back, I'll quit you. You don't need to skin the hide off of me. Marguerite done that last night, he said. All I'm asking is a chance. I doubted that his repentance would outlast his hangover, so told him. Once is one is all I'll ever give you. It's all up to you. Right after breakfast, Bob took the new Buick back to the dealer in McCook and managed to get a $50 refund. I followed in the Maxwell to bring him home, and on the way we passed a field with a dozen fine young hogs in it. There, gone, he said. If I'd have thought of it, I'd sure have butchered one of them good bacon hogs of ours, Aaron, before we shipped. Then it's a good thing you didn't think of it, I told him. VP would have thrown you in the hooskow if he found out that you'd butchered a mortgage hog. But I'll make a deal with you. If you'll give Marguerite the 50 bucks when we get home, I'll buy one of those hogs in the pasture for you to butcher. As soon as we got home, I went with a wagon for the hog, while Bob heated water for scalding and got ready to do the butchering. Neither he nor Marguerite ever told me he'd given her the money, but it showed on their faces when I got home. The afternoon was crisply cold, and we did the slaughtering behind the barn, out of the children's sight. By twilight, we had the halves hung high in a tree where coyotes couldn't reach them during the night. Marguerite fried fresh liver for supper, and though it was taboo on my diet, I ate my full share. That evening was the best we'd had since Thanksgiving. I brought in the powerful radio I've been working on and was able to tune in the New Year's Eve broadcast from a big Chicago station. New Year's Day was a busy and happy one. Bob was up as early as I, built the kitchen fire, and fed the horses and cows while I did the milking. The temperature had dropped to zero during the night, so after breakfast, we brought the pork into the kitchen. Bob cut the chops, then trimmed the hams and bacon slabs and packed them in salt to cure for smoking. My job was to bone the shoulders and neck and grind 50 pounds of meat for sausage. Marguerite seasoned the meat as I ground it, fried thick patties slowly in deep fat, and packed them in stone crocks and poured in hot fat to seal out the air and preserve the sausage. By bedtime, we had more than a two-month supply of meat packed away in the cave cellar. With only two cows and four horses to take care of, there wasn't much work to be done around the place, but Bob was up at the crack of dawn on Sunday and kept himself busy all day, doing half a dozen odd jobs that he'd been putting off ever since I'd lived there. I spent most of the day loafing, telling the girls stories, finding them programs they'd liked on the radio, and writing letters to my folks back home. Bob's notes fell due on Monday, so he went to the bank to sign over his half of the remaining feed. He was gone about half an hour, and when he came back, he told me, that guy acts like he's mad at everybody. The only way I could keep him from foreclosing on the whole shebang was to sign over both cows along with the feed. He wants to see you right away. 
When I went in, VP came to the railing with a sheaf of papers in his hand, held it out to me, and said it was a and said in a disagreeable tone, "The sheriff serving papers on these foreclosures now. I want the stock shipped out of here Saturday, every head of it. If anybody gives you any trouble, let me know right away." The foreclosures were against eleven of the finest young farmers on the lower benches on, at either side of Beaver Valley, and listed on each of the orders VP gave me. There were anywhere from a dozen to 50 cattle and hogs of various classifications. From calling on those farmers, <clears throat> I was well enough acquainted with their stock to know that they were being stripped right down to their last milch cow and brood sow. I also knew that the only reason their horses and farming equipment weren't being taken was that no market could be found for them. After looking at the papers over, I asked, is this stock going to be delivered to the railroad shipping pens on Saturday? No. VP snapped irritably. You'll have to go get it. I knew in reason that the foreclosed stock would net the bank far less than the new management expected, and that I'd leave myself open to claims of dishonesty unless I had proof as to the stock I received and shipped. So I told him that there will have to be a bank representative to check the stock into and out of my hands, sign receipts, and set the value on stock I hold out to cover my charges. Be reasonable, he told me. You know I can't chase all over this township to check in a few head of livestock. That's not necessary, I told him. It could be any man who knows livestock, is trusted by the farmers being foreclosed on, and who has no mortgage obligations to this bank. There were only three or four men who could qualify. And after a few seconds, he asked, <clears throat> How about Miner? He'd be okay with the farmers and me, I said. VP had Effie get George on the phone, talked to him a minute or two, and told me, He'll do it and be ready to start out in the morning. I want all that stock shipped Saturday, and there ought to be more to go along with it. I told him I'd do my best, went out, and crossed the street to the telephone office. The bank had a private line so that no one, except Effie, could eavesdrop on the conversations, but it worked both ways. No one on the bank phone could listen on online calls or the gossip continuing flowing back and forth on their, over the party wires, and I planned to start a little gossip. No farmer could help having some resentment toward me even though he knew I had nothing to do with the foreclosure, if I came to his place and took his stock away. But he'd have none if he delivered the stock himself and was well paid for doing it, particularly if he just had his bank balance seized. I've got a job to do that I don't like, I told Effie. Will you get B Bill Hornbuckle on the line for me? She raised her eyebrows questioningly, then plugged the jacket into the valley line receptacle and rang the Hornbuckle's combination. <clears throat> a moment later, she said, Hello, Dottie. Is Bill right handy? Bud Moody wants to talk to him. She covered the mouthpiece with her palm and whispered, Be careful what you say if you don't want it to get around. I already heard five or six receivers listed on that line. <laughs> I picked up the receiver on the wall phone, waited for Bill to come on the line, and told him, I've just been given a shipping job that I don't like, worth a... I know it, he said in a discouraged voice. The sheriff served the papers this morning. The sooner you come get the stuff, the more feed I'll have left for my horses. That's why I called you, Bill, I said. The bank has given me more of these jobs than I can handle by myself and is allowed to bring me is allowing me a dollar a head for cattle and fifty cents for hog to bring the stock in. I'd sure like to like it if you could if I could get you to bring yours in at those prices. The list I've got calls for nineteen cattle and twenty two hogs. That's right, he said, including my brood boar and bull and Dottie's two milk cows. Sure, but I'll bring them in and much obliged for giving me a chance to earn a dollar. Effie had, of course, 
listened to both ends of the conversation. I no sooner hung up the receiver than she jerked the plug, line plug and demanded angrily, how many other folks did that young whippersnapper foreclose on? For answer, I found out, fanned out the papers VP had given me and said, there'll be more, but I don't know how many. I'd sure appreciate having any of them bring their stock in at the rates the bank will be paying me, the ones I told Bill. Is everybody getting cleaned out like Bill right down to his last milk cow, she asked. That's right, I said, and every herd bull and boar. It's a dirty shame, she snapped. A farmer's milk cows are part of his family, and I'd about as leave take away one of his kids as one of his... She half choked, then spluttered. Get out of here before I set myself up to ballin'. Any more, I'm getting to be a sentimental old fool. Sentimental or not, Effie had given me an idea that would be of inestimable value to Beaver Township and to me. The more ambitious and better farmer a young man was, the less security Bones had required on loans. It was they who had overexpanded and proved their stock during, uh, the most during the four years, so they were first to be foreclosed on by the new bankers. Each of them had one or more excellent milch cows, and their herd bulls and boars were among the best in the township. But as butchers stock bulls and boars, regardless of the breeding qualities, would bring little more than two cents a pound above shipping costs. And my agreement with the bank was for payment of my charges in livestock at its butchering value. I'm to take livestock for my pay, I told Effie, and aim to take the cheapest, milch cows, bulls, and boars. But it would break me to feed them through the winter. If any of the folks bring, being foreclosed on would keep a cow or two for me till spring, I'd sure appreciate it. And anybody who wants a good herd, bull, or boar can come and pick one out. Then pay me back pound for pound in bacon hogs when I start shipping for myself again. Effie bounced out of her chair, smothered me in a bear hug, and told me, Now get out here. I've got work to do. By supper time, every man on whom I had an order had phoned to say he'd bring his stock in and would be glad to keep a cow or two for me until spring. That evening, George and I made plans for checking in on the stock. Next morning, he came over at sunrise, and soon after that, the discouraged farmers began to arrive with their cattle and hogs. As each animal was received, I painted an identification number on his shoulder, Bob weighed and penned it, while George entered his description and estimated value on a receipt with carbon copies for the bank and me. When each man went home, he took along one or two of his best milch cows, a receipt for his stock, and a check for delivering it. In mid-afternoon, George and I took the receipt copies to the bank, and VP gave me another sheaf of orders, most of them on the more prosperous tenant farmers on the divides. Before bedtime, every one of them had phoned to say he'd bring in his stock and to ask if he might keep a milch cow or two for me until spring. By Thursday, all the foreclosed stock had been delivered, and we had 11 carloads of it in the feedlot and sorting pens. 37 excellent milch cows had been lent to their former owners, and 19 equally good bulls and boars had been traded for one fat steer and nearly 10 tons of bacon hogs for future delivery. In addition, I'd taken the feed and two cows that Bob had signed over to the bank, 15 calves and 10 pigs too small to ship. <clears throat> George had placed a value barely under $2,000 on the stock and feed I'd taken. My fees amounted to a shade less than 1700 so I gave VP a check for the difference before leaving for Kansas City. I'd also paid the farmers nearly 400 for bringing in their stock, but instead of their holding resentment, I had a township full of friends. No man to whom I'd lent a cow or traded a bull or boar failed to come and help us load the shipment.
it is amazing how quickly Ralph figures out ways to help the people he's in the community with and to um, still learn how to make a profit and to, to get the work done and honor his uh, word to the bank to take care of them. I love you guys. Bye.